One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast instalment contains a reference to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's Monday the 30th of August 1847 and the town of Maitland in New South Wales's Hunter Valley has just concluded its annual three-day racing carnival. Attended by many of Sydney's most esteemed ladies and gentlemen, the meeting, favoured by fine weather, has been a splendid success. The race is run, the bets and the dust settled, those spectators have now returned south by steamer and by coach. Yet, one of Sydney's best-known men is still in Maitland. He's sticking around because one more event is to be held at the track. While this man is more eye-catchingly attired than any jockey, he isn't here to ride a horse. Rather, he's about to undertake an athletic feat unlike any attempted before in Australia, or, as far as anyone knows, in the world. It's a challenge that he's cherished for years. Now, with this racetrack available, backers supporting him and punters laying bets, he's going to give it his all. When the clock strikes three, this man, he starts walking the Maitland track. Walking, not running. Even so, this gent rounds the track, which is just shy of a mile, at an impressive clip, and he passes the post in under ten minutes. Yet, he doesn't stop. That's because this fast walking and fast-talking pedestrian is backing himself to do something extraordinary. He's going to walk 192 miles in 48 hours. That's an average of 4 miles per hour. And he's not going to stop for a moment. If, if he can pull this off, it'll be the greatest triumph to date for the man well-born in England as William Francis King, but now known across Australia as the Flying Pieman. 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is the first instalment of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's first sporting hero, the Flying Pieman. Australians famously love their sport, yet it wasn't always so, and that's hardly surprising. When the English took Gadigal land to colonise Port Jackson in 1788, it was to establish a convict colony. They were surrounded by harsh bush they didn't understand, and this outpost was to be a place of hunger, hardship and brutality. In other words, there wasn't a lot of time or space for sports. Soldiers may have wagered on whether they could pot kangaroos with muskets, and from 1795 onwards, sailors played billiards aboard ships at anchor. It'd be another 20 years or so until the first public spectator sports, believed to be horse races at a track at the Hawkesbury River. Though there would have been smaller informal contests, the first recorded bare-knuckle boxing match was between two convicts in Sydney in 1814. The first rowing contest was held at Sydney Cove in 1818, and the first club cricket match was played in Hyde Park in 1826. What was also really popular in these early days was pedestrianism, because it was very easy to stage and very easy to wager on. From the mid-1770s until the early 20th century, this was a hugely popular spectator sport. Though the term is archaic now, pedestrianism described walking and running challenges. Walkers would go as far or fast, or both, in races against the clock or another competitor using the fair heel-to-toe rule, which meant the toe of one foot had to remain on the ground until the heel of the other hit the dirt. Though the rules for running races over shorter distances were simpler, they weren't always just about sprinting from A to B faster than the other fellow. In October 1810, Sydney's Hyde Park, then a wide treeless field, was the venue for Australia's first big sporting event. This was a three-day racing carnival held under the patronage of Governor Lachlan Macquarie. In addition to horse races, punters enjoyed the colony's first recorded human races. The Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser reported several of these events were staged. Yet the newspaper only saw fit to provide the details of one that, quote, excited much pleasantry because, well, quote, it was a match for 20 guineas made by Dickie Dowling to carry 14 stone on his back 50 yards before his antagonist, a young active man, should run backwards and forwards the same ground making 100 yards. Picture it early colonial New South Wales' ladies and gentlemen in all their finery cheering their champions, one staggering under a weight heavier than most men, the other trying to close the distance dizzied after dashing backwards 50 yards. For the record, this race, which sounds like something out of Monty Python, was won with a foot to spare by good old Dickie Dowling, the spectators of the opinion that his opponent lost crucial ground when he'd had to reverse gears. Apart from being an odd bit of history, and this episode contains a lot of these, this race also illustrated that from the very first, Australian pedestrianism came with an eccentric streak. John Henniker Heaton's marvellous 1879 book, Australian Dictionary of Dates and Men of the Time, offers a detailed, if not complete, chronology of the colonial pedestrian contest that came after that 1810 race. Here are three good ones. Quote, Hyde Park, 
a 200 yards backwards race took place between two amateurs, which was won by three yards in one minute. August 13, 1830. Quote, Parramatta Road, a man leaped over three horses. January 15, 1830. Quote, Parramatta Road, Welch and Farrell, 100 yards. The winner had a wooden leg and received 10 yards start. May 5, 1834. The pedestrianism entry in that book comprises four closely set pages and covers decades. Of this space, nearly half a page is devoted to the walker who reigned supreme in the 1840s and early 1850s. William Francis King, a.k.a. The Flying Pieman. While Australia justifiably celebrates our sportsmen, including, of course, famous runners like Herb Elliott, Robert DiCostella and Cliffy Young, this man, our very first sporting hero, has been all but forgotten. Pedestrianism wasn't born in Australia, nor for that matter was the nickname The Flying Pieman. In the book Pedestrianism, published in London in 1813, author Walter Tom chronicled modern walking events as gaining in popularity in England from the mid-1770s. This volume lists many notables, giving detailed accounts of the incredible distances they covered. In 1788, indefatigable John Batty walked 700 miles in 13 days and 9 hours. In 1792, veteran pedestrian Foster Powell set a personal best for 396 miles when he did it in 5 days and 15 hours. While Powell and Batty and others achieved fame with these epic feats, the superstar of the sport was Scotsman Captain Robert Barclay, who made his name worldwide in 1809 by walking 1,000 miles in 1,000 consecutive hours. Obviously, that's one mile per hour, every hour, for 41 days and 16 hours. Not to take anything away from these achievements, but to better appreciate what our Flying Pieman was going to attempt, 192 miles in 48 hours non-stop, we need to break them down. John Batty walked his 700 miles at the rate of just over 2 miles per hour. Foster Powell hit an average of 3 miles per hour. They could both rest whenever they wanted and for as long as they wanted. Captain Barclay's 1,000-mile challenge rules, that was 1,000 consecutive hours, provided less downtime. So, to give himself as much unbroken rest as possible, he structured his walk this way. He walked one mile in the first 15 minutes of the first hour. Then, he rested for 90 minutes. Then he walked one mile in the last 15 minutes of that second hour and kept walking so he covered one mile in the first 15 minutes of the third hour. Then he had another 90 minutes rest. Using this system, Captain Barclay made it and his feat was huge news in 1809, not least because a staggering £100,000 had been bet on the outcome. More than anyone else, he put pedestrianism on the map in the early 19th century, and our flying pieman would see him as his nemesis. At this time in London, there was another species of long-distance walker seen frequently on the streets. These fellows walked all day, every day, to make their living. They were the piemen, who crisscrossed the city with tin trays of hot puddings. 
To be successful meant shouting their treats and speeding through as many streets as possible to find customers. Some were so fast, it was like they were flying. The first reference I found to a chap being called the Flying Pieman was in a July 1809 issue of the London Courier and Evening Gazette. On a page otherwise concerned with England's latest battles in the latest coalition war against Napoleon, the newspaper ran an article about celebrated eccentric Mr Harty, better known throughout the metropolis as the Flying Pieman. The nickname suggests he was fleet of foot, but we know for a fact he had a good set of lungs to cry his pies because he'd then undertaken an extraordinary wager. This flying pieman was to stand on a Lambeth Palace tower and shout hot pudding, all hot, loud enough to be heard three miles away at Battersea Bridge. Though the outcome wasn't reported, bets were said to be running two to one in his favour. Real Life in London, an 1821 book by Pierce Egan, recorded another flying pieman named James Sharp England. This man had a, quote, inexhaustible fund of humour and sprightliness of conversation, and would for his own amusement or for a wager, quote, walk a distance of 50 or 100 miles from the metropolis and return the same way. In the 1863 book, London Scenes and London People, author William Harvey describes another flying pieman, this one named Peter Stokes, who he'd known in his youth as a splendidly turned out ladies' man who sped around the city shouting, bye, bye, bye. The most bizarre story I found searching for the flying pieman of London came in a September 1822 issue of the St. James Chronicle. At the Covent Garden Market, an unnamed flying pieman, I guess it could have been any of those we've just heard about or someone altogether different, stormed the stage of an itinerant showman whose act involved two monkeys. This garrulous pieman had a bottle of gin from which he treated the showman and one of his simian performers to a drink. But the second monkey wasn't interested in taking a slug. So this pieman tried to force booze on the animal. Still, the monkey wasn't into it. The crowd, sensitive sorts clearly, shouted for the pieman to throw the drink in the poor creature's face, which he did. It was a case of instant karma. Quote, Instantly, the monkey who drank the gin and who was half drunk by this time sprung upon the pieman, seized him by the arm, and would have torn that piece of the flesh entirely out, only for its master, who, with much difficulty, made him relinquish his hold. The pieman was dangerously wounded and was carried to a doctor's shop to get his arm dressed. He was then carried home. From these colourful accounts, we can form a picture of the London flying pieman as fast-walking and fast-talking, flashily-dressed ladies' men who were open to wages and who'd amplify their eccentricities for the pleasure of the crowds, because crowds meant customers. As it turned out, this was exactly who our flying pieman would become. That was probably because he grew up with pedestrians and piemen very much a part of his world. From baptism records at ancestry.com.au, we know that William Francis King was born in London on the 19th of March, 1807. As the flying pieman would later tell it, his father was a paymaster with the British Treasury at Whitehall, who'd wanted him to become a reverend. 
an account of his early life that he gave in 1847 to the wonderfully titled Sydney magazine, Heads of the People, an illustrated journal of literature, whims and oddities, explained why he didn't follow this vocation. Quote, It soon appeared that his innate love of field sports and boisterous recreations was not befitting the sacred character, and he entered into partnership with Smith & Simpson, stock and share brokers in London. That job didn't work out, and he sold his interest and took a job as a clerk with the Treasury, which, quote, his restless disposition did not allow him to hold long. So, in 1829, at the age of 22, William Francis King was packed off to the colony of New South Wales. Sydney was then still a small town, with a white population of about 11,000 and twice that number spread across regional towns such as Parramatta, Windsor, Penrith and Bathurst. William landed in early December, hoping the high recommendations he brought with him would mean a government appointment. Quote, In this expectation, he was, however, disappointed, and he took the situation of schoolmaster and clerk at Sutton Forest. This apparently came about through the assistance of Sydney's new Church of England archdeacon, William Broughton, who himself had only just arrived in the colony. With a respectable job and good connections, William Francis King was set to work his way up to being a gentleman of New South Wales. Yet Sutton Forest had only recently been settled and it was then remote, sitting at the very southern edge of the colony. How long William worked this job and the reasons for him leaving aren't known, but there's a reasonable chance him leaving was seen as an affront to the venerable Archdeacon. William next worked for several years as a private tutor to the children of a Mr William Kern at Campbelltown. Here, as the Heads of the People article said, quote, his unsettled temper prevailed over every other feeling and he left Mr Kearns with the determination of returning to England. Many unforeseen difficulties, however, presented themselves and he was induced to hire as a barman with Mr H. Doran, who then kept the Hope and Anchor at the corner of King and Pitt Streets. So, William Francis King was working in a Sydney pub around the mid-1830s. At this time, the city already had an eccentric known to all as the Flying Pieman. Nathaniel McCulloch, aka James McCulloch, was a vendor of savoury treats, and he was one unsavoury character. He first made the newspapers under the Flying Pieman nickname in March 1831. Captain Lamb had been proceeding along George Street when, as the Sydney Monitor newspaper reported, he, quote, observed the pieman mounted on his pony under the veranda of a house acting in a most outrageous manner. Hauled before the court, this flying pieman alleged Captain Lamb bore him a personal grudge. The magistrate presiding over the case, Captain Rossi, said he himself had seen the pieman on the day of the incident throwing coins on the street and acting like a madman. To this, Nathaniel McCulloch said he could do what he liked with his honest, hard-earned money, especially as he had a lot of it. In fact, he said he was going to spend £100 to hire a lawyer and go after Captain Lamb personally. Captain Rossi said that was his right, but in the meantime, he needed to cough up £80 bail. The flying pieman said... No problem, because he had a cool £1,800 kicking around at home. Slapping down notes for this bail, he pluckily told the clerk of the court to keep the change. 
Nathaniel McCulloch was, in 1835, described by the Sydney Herald as having, quote, arrived at a pitch of peculiar notoriety by his eccentric conduct. He certainly thumbed his nose at authority by baiting constables and colonial officials, and he took it all the way to the top. This flying pieman's most famous stunt was to wager that he'd be able to dress up like a dandy, hop on his horse, and ride up to Governor Richard Burke at the racecourse. He bet he'd be able to salute the most important man in Australia, have the governor return his salute, and then even shake hands with His Excellency. Nathaniel McCulloch pulled it off exactly as described. While such larrikinism no doubt endeared him to many wild colonials, this flying pieman was a deeply disturbed individual. In December 1834, while under the influence, he wandered into a Sydney house and exposed himself to two women. Two years later, December 1836, the Sydney Gazette, under the headline Effects of Drinking, reported this flying pieman, quote, who has long been a pest to Sydney from his drunken habits and filthy language, had been brought before the court on charges of collecting a mob, riotous behaviour and obscene language. In court, his clothes were now tattered, he was shaking from the effects of booze and his head was bandaged because he'd suffered a ghastly wound during a drunken fight. Nathaniel McCulloch was sent to jail for a month because all that money he'd boasted about was gone and no one could or would pay his bond. The Sydney Gazette sermonised, quote, Here then is a living witness of the destruction and ruin wrought by the baneful habit of intoxication. All moral principle is thrown aside, every social bond broken, and, lost to himself and a nuisance to his fellow creatures, the habitual drunkard sinks down to his grave, unpitied and alone. The newspaper had the man's measure. In August 1838, in a fit of drunken delirium, this flying pieman slashed his throat with a dinner knife. He was rushed to hospital by a police constable where the wound was found to be not life-threatening. In May the following year, this flying pieman did it again. Police constables handcuffed him and took him to the prisoner's hospital at the Hyde Park barracks. This flying pieman had a wife and she was determined that her husband should die, as the Sydney Gazette had put it, unpitied and alone. The Sydney Monitor newspaper reported, quote, His wife would scarcely permit the constable to put anything either under or over her husband in the cart, alleging as a reason in a whisper to one of the bystanders that he used her dreadful. Despite the efforts of medical gentlemen, this flying pieman died a few hours after arriving at the hospital. An inquest found that the throat wound hadn't actually been fatal, but all that drinking and self-destructive drama had led to him suffering a stroke. Nathaniel McCulloch was dead, and Sydney Town had a vacancy for a flying pieman. Around the time William Francis King was working as a barman at the Hope and Anchor pub, a tragedy supposedly befell him that was to become part of the flying pieman folklore. The story went that William had fallen in love with a convict girl, but as he wasn't a man of means, he wasn't able to take her as his wife. So he hatched an elopement plan. William put her into a wooden sea trunk so he could spirit her away on a ship sailing for Tasmania. But a mix-up meant that after she was aboard in that box, the vessel left Circular Quay without William. 
Stefan Williams, an amateur historian like yours truly, in 1986 self-published a 32-page monograph on the Flying Pieman, which is the only biography of the man to ever see print. He described what William did once he realised his convict love was sailing away without him. Quote, King was in an immediate panic, as none of the crew were in on his secret, and the box, although solidly built, had been designed for short-term use only. He seized a horse from a passerby and rode frantically along the harbour's coastline to South Head, but all of his efforts to hail the ship were in vain. In the subsequent despair of their separation and the probability of the girl's death from starvation, thirst or asphyxiation, the personality of William King disappeared and the Flying Pieman emerged. Stefan Williams wrote he didn't know whether this story was true or not and understandably included it because it was, quote, too spicy to ignore. He was writing and researching when everything he found was the result of trawling through microfiche or even old physical copies of newspapers. I'm fortunate to have digitised newspapers at my disposal and they've turned up the ghastly truth behind this story, which we'll hear a little later. We don't know when William became a pieman and a pedestrian. Suffice to say that by 1842, he was well known in Sydney as both. A drawing made by John Ray that year, looking south across Hyde Park, showed ladies and children perambulating on the edge of the fence field that bustled with men and boys at play. In the distance were the twin windmills of Darlinghurst and the Australian Museum then under construction. And at the right side of the picture stands William, plying his trade, a big tin tray slung around his neck. This contraption had fold-out legs so it could function as a stand. In an undercarriage area, coals glowed red to keep everything piping hot as promised. William's baked goods, which appear to have been puddings rather than pies as we're used to them, were arranged in one compartment. Customers nominated their flavour, mutton, kidneys, apple and so on, and William used a little pump to apply the appropriate gravy before serving the pie on a little blue plate. In a time when Sydney had few restaurants and cafes, piemen were a welcome sight, and the flying pieman, he was hard to miss. That's because, as a couple of contemporary illustrations show, William Francis King was a bit of a dreamboat. He was lithe, muscular, and of medium height with dark hair, big eyes, full lips, and high cheekbones. He was also one hell of a flashy dresser. William's usual attire included red knee breeches, white stockings, a white shirt, and a blue coat with a top hat bedecked with lots of colourful ribbons, as was the walking stick he carried. William sold pies wherever his feet took him, with hotspots including Hyde Park, used for sport and recreation, and Circular Quay, from which steam ferries now traversed Sydney Harbour and Parramatta River. While William was already known as the Flying Pieman by 1842, newspapers hadn't reported the feats that had landed him the nickname. For these, we rely on his own accounts found in an 1846 letter to Governor Charles Fitzroy and in that 1847 Heads of the People article. As far as the trustworthiness of these reports, the most we're able to say is that William had a reputation for honesty, that these stories weren't publicly disputed at the time, and that they align with his later verified achievements. 
One of the earliest efforts done for his own enjoyment, though others placed heavy wages, saw the flying pieman walk around Hyde Park for 39 days. He'd done it in what he'd called boisterous weather, so that only nine of these days were without rain. When he'd finished, he'd covered 1,634 miles, that is, about 42 miles a day, an average of one and three-quarter miles an hour. The Flying Pieman also claimed to have walked 43 and a half miles in seven hours, one minute and a half. The Flying Pieman had also beaten the coach from Campbelltown to Sydney by 15 minutes, doing those 36-odd miles in five and three-quarter hours. What's important to remember about these massive feats of endurance was that he was walking, not running, and he was doing it in the restrictive clothing of the day while wearing knee-high leather hessian boots and walking on rutted dirt roads not much removed from tracks. Some of William's other undated stunts included he walked from Sydney to Campbelltown to visit his old employer, Mr. Kern, and then walked back to his starting point, completing the entire 62-mile journey in 12 hours. He was also said to have walked from Parramatta Church to Windsor Church, 44 miles, for three consecutive days, his best time being 7 hours, 25 minutes. But the Flying Pieman's most startling stunt was when, at Circular Quay, he sold half his pies to passengers getting on the ferry to Parramatta. He then hot-footed it west and got there three minutes before the steamer arrived, able to tempt disembarking passengers at Parramatta with the rest of his goodies. Just as we don't know the chronology of these early events, similarly, none were attended by timekeepers or reporters, yet in terms of distances, times and average speeds, they align with what would be officially recorded from June 1842. That was when the Australasian Chronicle newspaper reported, quote, A man known by the cognomen of the Flying Pieman undertook for a wager to walk from the obelisk in Macquarie Place to nearly a mile beyond Parramatta and back again, a distance of 32 miles in six hours. That was an average of five and one-third miles an hour for a quarter of a day. William made it back with a minute to spare, quote, without being any way distressed. For his next reported Sydney Parramatta trek, William added an absurd degree of difficulty for novelty value. In October 1842, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Curious match. Yesterday, the Flying Pieman undertook to walk from the obelisk in Macquarie Place to Ireland's public house and back, carrying six stone in three hours and twenty minutes. Mr. Pieman chose live weight and strapped a boy on his back, making up the weight with shot, etc. He won his wager, having some minutes to spare when he came in, having gone somewhat more than the required distance. Another time he undertook to walk from Sydney to Parramatta, he went a bit slower. This time it took him six hours in the middle of a hot summer's day. But to be fair, he was carrying a 92-pound live goat plus an extra 12 pounds in weight, so 47 kilograms all up. He'd pull off a similar stunt carrying a dog too. As the heads of the people would tell readers, quote, he undertook on one occasion to carry a dog weighing upwards of 70 pounds from Campbelltown to Sydney between the hours of half past 12 at night and 20 minutes to 9 the next morning, which he accomplished 20 minutes within the given time. 
Then there was this from the newspaper The Satirist and Sporting Chronicle in March 1843. Quote, Astonishing pedestrian feat by the celebrated walking pieman. On Thursday next, the long-pending match will come off. Mr. King to carry the inside of a beast from the obelisk in Macquarie Place to Liverpool River. This dirty feat has only been performed twice in England, and we trust the pieman has provided a night cart to accompany him. Inside of a beast seems to refer to a bullock's stomach and intestines, presumably still filled with something gross, hence the description of it as a dirty feat and the joke about the night cart, which was a vehicle used to pick up excrement. The Flying Pieman wasn't famed only for taking bizarre challenges that saw him walk non-stop. He was just as famous for talking non-stop. As we'll see, his patter praised his powers of pedestrianism, panegyrized his pies, pilloried perfidious politicians, proselytized his principles, and preened of his popularity with pretty patronesses. Close to a century later, newspaper features about the Flying Pieman would sometimes lament that his speeches hadn't been recorded for posterity. Yet, that's not entirely true. By scouring contemporary newspapers for articles, letters and advertisements, we can get a good sense of the Flying Pieman's personality and his volubility. The first of these I found was in a Parramatta newspaper called The Star and Workingman's Guardian, which on the 11th of May 1844 ran an article that reads like an advertisement placed by William. Quote, That well-known individual, the Flying Pieman, is now enlivening Parramatta by his musical cries. His talents for pie-making are said to be hereditary and recommends hot apple pie for breakfast as his father used always to eat them. The pieman is one of the most active and industrious men we ever met with and deserves encouragement. There was no encouragement forthcoming three months later when William, by now billing himself as the sporting walking flying pieman, champion pedestrian of New South Wales, got into trouble with the law. Here's Sydney's The Dispatch newspaper on what he'd been up to in the lead-up to his arrest on the 14th of August. Quote, This ubiquitous phenomenon, having scarcely shut his eyes for three weeks and having travelled three nights in each week a distance of 54 miles between his town and country residence and having employed himself on the morning in question in making and baking, shouting and selling his rolls and pies about the city of Sydney. Having sold out by mid-morning, the Flying Pieman accepted a £5 wager to walk 8 miles in 70 minutes. He won the bet with 7 minutes to spare. In triumph and, quote, labouring under strong excitement, he was loudly extolling his wares and winning ways when he was nabbed by a policeman named Captain Brown, arrested for disturbing the peace and tossed in a cell overnight. The next day, William told the court he'd suffered a gross indignity. But he told the court much more than that, starting with his version of what had happened. And in his testimony, his voice rings clear over more than 175 years. Quote, Yesterday morning, I had sold my pies and rolls at 10 o'clock. I started to walk a match against time. Your Worship, I appeal with a sense of pride to this cap, which I hold in my hand, the badge of the Championship of Pedestrianism in New South Wales. 
Need I say that when it was known that the sporting walking flying pieman was going to walk a match, that intense anxiety prevailed throughout the city. When I returned in triumph, when, your worship, returned I not in triumph, I was hailed by the barrowman at the market with congratulations at my success. Genius, your worship, levels all distinctions. It is too great for pride. Napoleon, your worship, shook hands with his soldiers, and the flying pieman thought it not beneath him to converse with the barrowmen. Then he'd been collared by the inspector. Quote, Arrested as a common nuisance. Oh, the flying pieman, seized like a drunken ruffian, thrown in the state I then was, after performing the unparalleled feat of walking eight miles in an hour and three minutes, thrown into the watch house. William then turned it up a notch, quote, Your Worship, I am a pieman. I glory in my calling. I call my pies as pieman ought and have a right to do. Tell me, what pieman is so base as not to call his pies? Who so proud as not to cry his rolls? Who so mean as not to shout, all hot, if any, speak? Even if anyone had wanted to contradict him, it's unlikely they would have got a word in. William wasn't stopping at comparing himself to Napoleon either, not when he could aim higher, much higher, he went on. Then, how have I offended, your worship? Antiquity proclaims a pieman's to be an honourable profession. Were not the fragments of the loaves and fishes gathered into baskets, and how trifling the change from the roll basket to the pie can? And, a bit like Jesus, the flying pieman wasn't here to save himself, but for the salvation of all men, or at least all pie men. Hence his concluding argument, quote, Your Worship, I have been treated unjustly, as a man that I could forgive, but the blot upon my profession must be effaced, and well will become the dignity of your honourable bench to support in its unsullied purity the as yet unblemished vocation of the pie man. Verdict? The court exploded with cheers, the magistrate dismissed the charge, and the valiant walking hero walked free. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As we've heard, William Francis King was faster than coaches and steamers and that led to Sydney Papers paying him as a courier to deliver to them the latest news from wherever he'd been. It's important to remember that his ubiquity came at a time when most Sydney people spent most of their time around their homes or nearby workplaces. They had very small radiuses while he ranged far and wide. So Everyone knew the Flying Pieman, and the Flying Pieman knew everyone. 
given this, and that William was a popular sportsman and successful entrepreneur with a talent for making speeches and a thorough knowledge of colonial happenings, it seemed only natural that he'd take a tilt at political office. In October 1844, when there was a vacancy in the Sydney Council's Burke Ward, the Flying Pieman declared his candidacy via a letter to the citizenry that ran as an ad in Sydney's short-lived Morning Chronicle. Back then, aspiring politicians typically claimed they were reluctantly standing for office at the behest of their supporters and for the selfless good of all. The Flying Pieman, he made a mockery of this. Just a note on what you're about to hear, gammon means deceitful nonsense. The Pieman's letter read, To the citizen electors of Burke Ward, gentlemen, in paying my addresses to you as a candidate for the representation of your magnanimous ward in the city council, I will not indulge in the gammon that I am induced to do so by the earnest, the pressing, and the irresistible solicitations of numerous or innumerable well-wishers of mine. Neither will I take leave of my senses altogether or insult your understanding by telling you that I feel any reluctance to come forward." As to gammon, gentlemen, I assure you, upon my honour, that I am incapable of it, and as to reluctance to solicit civic honours, I must candidly acquaint you that I am far from being burdened with any such amiable defect. On the contrary, I am bloated up with ambition to be a city councillor. I will give you the whys and wherefores presently. First, the Flying Pieman derisively sought to prove that he met the stated qualifications for candidacy. That was, he could read and write. Quote, I must tell you that by dint of practice, I have acquired such command over my pen as to be able to write my name with a flourish. And to make the thing better, I am able to read my own writing in an hour afterwards. He continued, I will be prepared to write my name. Of course, it is to be understood I must have a good pen. For you, I will even write any word of from one to five syllables. The word must, however, be of my own selection. As for being able to read, he joked he'd engaged a special teacher, quote, under whose instructions I have progressed so far as to be able to read the debates, as they are termed, in the city council, though I cannot say that I have been able to comprehend them. Now, the Flying Pieman set out why he wanted to be a councillor. Firstly, quote, Because I will be a much greater man then than I am now, at least in my own estimation, and not unlikely in the estimation of a few of the credulous and gullible, and we know there is an abundance of such fry. His other reason for wanting office, quote, To promote my own interests and benefit myself very considerably, I am no hypocrite, gentlemen. Therefore, I honestly confess that my object in soliciting your votes is more connected with self than anything else. I take no interest whatever in the repairing of a sewer or the laying of a water pipe other than it affects me personally. The Flying Pieman then added a couple of postscripts. In the first, he said he'd make the dunderheads of city council into his tools so they'd elect him mayor, after which he'd quote, Look down upon you all with scorn and contempt. The second postscript promised two drinks to each of his supporters on election day, and if the price of beef should come down sufficiently, he'd also offer them a modest sandwich.
The Flying Pieman's irreverence won him many admirers. These included a poet who went by the nom de plume, Titus Ticklum, who penned an ode to the Pieman in an October 1844 issue of the newspaper Bee of Australia. Here's a sample that referenced William's recent doings and hinted he wasn't only carrying newspapers but secretly writing for them. Quote, The Flying Pieman is my name, my feats to all are known, sirs. Extensive is my walking fame, the champion's belt I own, sirs. Old time, they say, keeps running on. I seldom chance to meet him, but backed against him oft I've been and never failed to beat him. I carry out the latest news and certain persons guess, sirs, that I myself do court the muse and scribble for the press, sirs. There's Captain Brown I met in town. He looked at me severe, sirs, because I sang a certain song to people's hearts to cheer, sirs. My verses are like my pies, so spicy, sweet and savoury. I open all the people's eyes to legislative knavery. I mean to take my seat myself and then a change you'll see, sirs. I'll show up their love of self, though a government nominee, sirs. Australian democracy is perhaps poorer for the fact that the Flying Pieman wasn't elected to council. Nor did he win his next massive walking challenge, which was to walk 60 miles in 12 successive hours for six consecutive days. He started on the 28th of October 1844 at Beetson's Pub at Blackwattle Swamp, walking to Mrs. Thompson's public house on Parramatta Road, and then back again, and then back again, and then back again. As he did this to and fro route, a crowd of ragged urchins followed him boisterously, and ordinary folk tried to keep pace and to have a chat with this talking walking man. As for the city's toffs, well, they were also fans. The Bee newspaper reported, quote, A considerable number of the sporting gentry in gigs and on horseback attended during the day to witness this walking curiosity. He was attired for the occasion in a light dress and jockey cap, and his face denoted that he was determined to achieve fame. William was also determined to win the £30 that had been bet against him. On the first day, he finished his 60 miles with 90 minutes to spare, an average of nearly 5 and 3 quarter miles per hour. On Tuesday, he went slower, finishing with just a few minutes to spare. On Wednesday, he was reported to be in good spirits, though he began to tire. Nevertheless, he said he was confident he'd win his backers' money and his own 30 pounds. The Maitland Mercury and Hunter River General Advertiser reported on Saturday the 2nd of November, quote, He exhibited symptoms of extreme exhaustion which alarmed his friends and backers, although he would not admit that he suffered much from fatigue, repeatedly assuring them that he knew his own constitution and had trained himself so well previously that there was not the slightest cause for apprehension on his account. Notwithstanding, before the enthusiasm of the walking pieman had evaporated like the savoury juices of his own delicious pies, and when he was within but three hours of the time allowed for the completion of his day's task, Inspector Higgins appeared upon the ground with a posse comitatus, and at the earnest request of several humane persons who hinted that the man was not quite so sound in his upper works, put a stop to his walking, which very much incensed the enthusiastic pieman. 
Given he was three hours shy of finishing the Wednesday walk, which would have put him at 180 miles in 36 consecutive hours, you have to wonder whether the people who wanted him stopped were concerned about his well-being or concerned they were going to lose their money. The Bee newspaper reported that William had been, quote, placed in safekeeping, whatever that meant. It editorialised, quote, We are disposed to think that this was the prudent course, as the feat is evidently too great for human energies. As is often the case with eccentrics in the public eye, William's sanity was being called into question, not for the first time and not for the last. Articles at the time make frequent references to his excitability and volubility. These characteristics, along with his proclivity for going without sleep for long periods and his incredible energy levels, suggest that today he'd be diagnosed with hypomania, which is a mood state in which the afflicted person displays the less severe symptoms of mania and remains functioning and even extremely goal-directed. As we'll see, the Flying Pieman's writings, which were grandiose and verbose streams of consciousness, also fit with this. Thing is, though, William didn't pose a threat to anyone else, and any argument he risked killing himself through exhaustion was pretty thin given he'd already achieved so many endurance feats without suffering any visible ill effects. In addition to people wanting to protect their bets, it's also possible that William was stopped because he was considered an irritant by some of those in power. After all, this gadfly had just recently, in short order, beaten the constabulary in court and then publicly made a mockery of Sydney's political class. We don't know whether this incident led to the Flying Pieman pausing his epic efforts or whether he just contented himself with selling pies for the next six months. William was next reported in March 1845 planning an Easter show in Parramatta. There, on George Street, he'd walk on stilts in a match against time to pick up slippery peach stones set one-third of a yard apart. Good fun, but trifling, compared with the challenge he announced six months later. Bell's Life in Sydney and Sporting Review and Newspaper had that year launched as Australia's first sporting weekly. Bell's Life was among those papers that would pay William as a courier, and over the next quarter of a century, it'd celebrate his achievements, publish his letters and advertisements, and on one occasion, even publicly decline to print a piece of his correspondence because it was so long, it'd fill an entire newspaper. At the start of September 1845, Bell's Life ran a notice stating that a friend of the Flying Pieman was now ready to back him to, quote, walk a match against time on the Sydney cricketing race course, distance 192 miles, to be walked in 48 succeeding hours and no standing still during the time, to take his meals from a tray whilst walking. Anyone doubting his ability to do this was invited to bet any sum, quote, the larger the stake, the more hearty will be the thanks of the noble thoroughbred pieman. Yet it didn't come off. We don't know why, though, judging by what happened later, it's likely there weren't enough takers or that he was denied the use of the race course. Around this time, people living in Sydney were able to have a punt on other curious pedestrian challenges. Two stand out. 
In December 1844, at St Albans, a chap named Abraham Nichols announced he'd take on the following challenge, to pick up 100 stones set a yard apart and drop them singly in a basket set at the 50-yard mark. So Abraham was to walk from one end with the first stone, drop it in the basket, and then walk back 49 yards to get the next stone, and so on. Then he'd do the same on the other side. He backed himself to complete this frantic back-and-forth feat in 60 minutes. Abraham Nichols did it in 42. That spectacle was surely fun, and it gave the flying pieman an idea, but it was tame compared with the wild scene that unfolded in September 1845 on the main street of Windsor. In driving rain, for a wager of 20 shillings, boxer Arthur O'Hare, known to locals as Mad Arthur, challenged a man nicknamed Currajong Sawyer to a rolling match. As in, rolling bodily along the muddy ground of Windsor's main street over the hundreds of yards from Freeman's Australian Hotel to Blanchard's signpost. 20 yards from the finish line, Mad Arthur rolled right into a muddy rut that nearly smothered him, leaving Currajong Sawyer to take the line honours in a time of nine minutes. Having watched these shenanigans, an Aboriginal boxer known as Black Bobby, who'd recently clobbered Mad Arthur in the ring, challenged Windsor's new rolling champion for a wager of 10 shillings. Currajong Sawyer declined. Just as well, because Black Bobby did a demonstration roll anyway, and he smashed that same muddy course in just five minutes. In November 1846, still trying to drum up interest in his 192-mile challenge, Bell's Life published the Flying Pieman's open letter to Governor Charles Fitzroy that requested his sports-loving excellency witness the undertaking. In this correspondence, in which he gave an account of his birth and upbringing and many pedestrian accomplishments, William said he would walk the 192 miles with comparative ease because he followed a, quote, most rigorous system of training and could, quote, dispense with sleep. Governor Fitzroy, perhaps mindful of how his predecessor had been made a fool of all those years ago by William Francis King's predecessor, did not lend his name to the proposal. On the subject of names, a man named Jemmy Murray was at this time getting around Launceston in Van Diemen's Land selling Savaloys under the cognomen of the Flying Pieman. Jemmy was fond of a drink, as was Nancy Robertson, the convict he called his wife. Nancy had been transported to Australia in mid-1841 on the Raja, sentenced to seven years. So, in March of 1847, she would have soon been free, but not soon enough for her and for Jemmy. They wanted to move to Melbourne, not next year, but now. So they hatched a plan. The Flying Pieman packed Nancy into a wooden box and had her loaded as cargo into the holder of the steamer Shamrock, on which he'd also travel to Port Phillip Bay. The box had air holes and Nancy had a bottle of gin to keep her going. Shamrock steamed up the Tamar River to Georgetown, where the vessel was detained for some time before heading out into Bass Strait. They'd not long been at sea when the ship's captain, Gilmore, smelled something the Port Phillip Herald would describe as extremely offensive, issuing from the hold. At the same time, the captain saw Jemmy Murray go below and put his hand into a large box, saying, It's all right now, Nancy. 
come up. When there was no answer, they opened the crate. Nancy, the Port Phillip Herald reported, quote, was discovered in a dreadful state. The eyes protruded from the sockets, the tongue was out of the mouth, and altogether showing symptoms that the deceased met her death by suffocation, caused by the great heat of the hold and owing to several trusses of hay having been placed over the case. The bottle of gin was untouched, but there was speculation she'd been drunk when she got into the box and this had hastened her death. Not standing on ceremony because poor Nancy was stinking up the shamrock, her body was thrown overboard. Jemmy was taken into custody to appear before the court in Melbourne. This flying pieman doesn't appear to have been convicted of anything, meaning he was free to roam Melbourne and drink himself into oblivion. The last I found of him was in December that year when he was arrested, quote, beastly drunk without any pants on while shouting his head off in Swanston Street on a Sunday morning. Though Jemmy Murray had more in common with William Francis King's predecessor, Nathaniel McCulloch, the use of the cognomen clearly led to the conflation that created that convict girl legend that attached itself to our flying pieman. Thing was, though, William was to experience his own very real romantic tragedy. In July of 1847, the flying pieman was concentrating on a new challenge. He was going to walk 50 miles in 12 hours for six successive days on the Randwick Racecourse. He wasn't doing it for the money, but according to the Heads of People magazine for, quote, the pleasure of gratifying the ladies. Yet it didn't come off. As the magazine reported, quote, it seems that the ladies were deprived of their anticipated gratification through the instrumentality of some of our civic authorities who would not allow him to proceed with his task even on the race course. Query, was it anxiety for the poor man's constitution that induced this interference? We may possibly have a few words to say next week relative to this eccentric individual. We can be thankful that the publication delivered much more than that. Running on the cover of its 6th of August 1847 issue, a beautiful full-page lithograph of William that's now held by the National Gallery. Heads of the People also printed a biography that ran to more than one page. The details found in this article, obviously furnished by William, would have formed the basis for dozens and dozens of articles over the next century. The magazine's editorialising would, however, be distorted to depict him as a simpleton who could be induced to do anything for a wager upon which others would get rich. Yet the article made it clear there was much more to this remarkable man than being a dupe and butt of everyone's jokes. Heads of the people compared him to Shakespeare's comic character Sir John Falstaff, who, in a speech in Henry IV, said, quote, Men of all sorts take a pride to gird at me. The brain of this foolish compounded clay, man, is not able to invent anything that tends to laughter more than I invent or is invented on me. I am not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in other men. The point that the heads of the people writer made, and that so many successive scribes missed, was that far from being a joke, the flying pieman was in on the joke. What was beyond a joke for William, though, was that Sydney's civic authorities kept interfering with the performance of his feats. So, in August 1847, he headed north to Maitland for the annual racing carnival. There, 
On Friday the 27th, with the races just finished, he was backed to replicate Abraham Nichols' feat, but he'd used corn instead of stones. 100 cobs were laid out one yard apart. The flying pieman backed himself to complete the course in 55 minutes. He did it in 53, winning the wager even though he'd taken 11 minutes longer than the time recorded by Abraham Nichols. With Maitland enthused about the Flying Pieman and their race course available for him to use, William next accepted a small wager to finally take on his cherished challenge. He was going to walk 192 miles in 48 hours, no stopping. Three men would work in shifts to time his movements and to tend a fire so he had refreshments and food. The Flying Pieman started walking at 3 o'clock on the afternoon of Monday, the 30th of August. He walked, and he walked, and he walked. That evening, he was averaging an impressive seven miles an hour. As Maitland Racecourse was just under a mile, a length measuring the shortfall had been staked out. As the 24-hour mark approached, the Flying Pieman walked this distance 144 times to ensure he made up the difference. So, when 3 o'clock Tuesday rolled around, William had officially covered 110 miles. That was more than 4.5 miles an hour. 82 miles to go, 24 hours left on the clock. He'd make it if he could average just under 3.5 miles an hour. As the Maitland Mercury newspaper went to print that evening, the challenge was still underway, and the paper reported, quote, Although then looking jaded and slightly lame, he freshened up again after sundown and expressed confidence in his power to win. William Francis King had the mental power to win. Did he have the physical power? He hadn't really been training for this, nor had he been resting up over the past week. Far from it. In his usual energetic style, the flying pieman had been flitting about and enjoying the race carnival till all hours. Still, he had the strength and he had the will to go on. But neither were enough. Not when his feet were giving out in those leather boots as he tramped endlessly around and around on that rough ground. Around midnight on Wednesday, the flying pieman was starting to struggle. His feet were swollen and tender and he was going slow and getting slower. Two hours later, after completing 140 miles in 35 hours, he was barely able to walk. The flying pieman had to stop and concede a painful defeat. He was down, but he wasn't out. The flying pieman announced that he'd try again after preparing himself better for the task. Bell's Life newspaper believed he might pull it off, but also worried it might mean his demise. Quote, in justice to his health, we think his friends ought to insist on the stipulation being omitted that he should not cease walking for a single minute. William Francis King wouldn't hear of that. He'd said he was going to walk 192 miles in 48 hours non-stop, and that's what he was going to do. As he'd soon declare, from now on, the flying pieman believed there were only two possible outcomes in these endurance challenges. Death or glory. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the first instalment of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's first sporting hero, the Flying Pieman. The second part will be out very soon. 
In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Australian folklorist and musician Warren Fay for use of the tunes you've been hearing. They come from his 2012 album, Australian Bush Orchestra. You can buy this and his other recordings at iTunes. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.